We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Nani Vishwanath, who's a consultant facilitator with the Courage Collective and also a program manager with REI's Inclusion Marketing Team. Let's jump in and get to know Nani. How are you? Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm great. Happy to be here. Oh, excellent. We're thrilled that you're going to hang out with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and get to explore some cool topics. Curious, Nani, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you currently at right now? Where are you living now? And also tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised. Sure. So right now I am living just outside of Seattle, Washington, where I've been for over a decade now. I was born on the other part of the country. I was born in the Chicago area and grew up in Spokane, Washington, on the east side of the state. My parents were born and raised in India and immigrated to the U.S. in the 80s. And I'm the oldest of four kids. And yeah, we grew up in Spokane, but I've been over here since college. That's fascinating. Tell us a little bit about what kind of lessons did you learn growing up there as one of four and and, uh, being of Indian descent? Yeah, as I reflect on it, it was a really fascinating experience. Shout out to all the eldest children out there. It's quite a journey. (laughs) And uh, as you're navigating not only kind of the life that you're living in the here and now, also navigating being a first generation American and all of the kinds of parts of culture that your parents didn't necessarily experience growing up in a different part of the world. I was really lucky to be in a lot of the spaces I was in in Spokane. My parents moved there because my dad was a surgeon for many years, and we had a lot of opportunities for us because of the career choice he had and the neighborhoods we were in, the schools we were in, et cetera. And as I reflect back on it, I think about how often I felt like I was included in a lot of spaces and I felt pretty happy about my educational experiences and beyond. And I think as I've gotten older, what I've started to untangle is what I thought was inclusion was often assimilation. And I think I often shed parts of my identity to fit into what was largely a white dominated place. Many parts of Spokane, including the schools we were at, were largely white. And so that really impacted the way I showed up as a person. And as I started to navigate those systems was also impacting how I showed up as a sibling too. I'm curious about those experiences and with your family, were you able to talk to your parents about kind of those feelings or is that something that you kind of discovered a little bit later in life? I'd say it came later in life. I think I wasn't even keenly aware of it. As an adolescent, I was just sort of living in the moment, trying to make sense of things as they came to me, and also trying to explain kind of what were some of the cultural norms of high school in America that were very different than what my parents experienced, right? Like prom and the even the athletic games and some of those staple moments were very different. And mm-hmm. so sort of navigating that. And then as an adult, as I've started to understand how that surrounding impacted me, we've had more conversations about that. And for them too, right? They were navigating this world as well and probably doing some of the same learning and unlearning. That's great. I want to ask you a little bit more about that a little bit later, but I also want to know what's happening today when you wake up and, and you do your work. Tell us a little bit about some of the work you're doing with the Courage Collective and also some of the work with REI's inclusion marketing team. Yeah, absolutely. So 
like I said, I live in the Seattle area. I'm a mother. I have a partner and I have two young children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm usually being woken up by my young children and spending the day or the morning trying to sort out those general parent logistics. But my jobs are really exciting. I'd say generally I am a diversity and inclusion professional, and I serve that role in a couple of different capacities. One is through consulting and facilitating with the Courage Collective, which is an organization that a few of my friends and I and close colleagues developed in 2020 as a result of being people from historically excluded communities in largely white dominated companies and thinking, what can we do when we talk about DEI in a way that actually feels human? So many of these trainings and things that we do feel like a check the box, a risk mitigation practice, and none of it's really about humanity, empathy, connection. And so we started to build a training platform, but also some consulting, and I still do that today. I also work at REI, it's a large outdoor retailer. I work on the marketing side, and I'm really thinking about how to shape a brand and an industry that has somewhat been exclusive for a long time to be more representative and authentic to more people as it needs to be. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And curious to know a little bit more about your career journey, right? What led you to becoming a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional? And how did you get there? Yeah. It's really funny when I look back at it, it all makes sense. But in the moment, I don't think at any one point in my early career would I have been able to identify this is where I would have ended up at this point in my life. I graduated from college in the peak of the recession and was just sort of looking for something where I could use my skills and was having a kind of hard time figuring out what that was. I didn't know what my future job would be. I didn't have something I was arcing toward. So I ended up actually back in higher education and ended up spending about a decade in higher education. During that time, I also went back to school and got my graduate degree in education, specifically in student development. And sort of the through thread of all of those years in that context was asking critical questions about who are these things designed for and why. And oftentimes they were not designed for a diverse population of students. And so I spent some time focusing on leadership development in the college context, leadership being a construct that I really wanted to tear apart because I really saw it only being accessible by a certain set of people who had a certain set of identities and experiences and backgrounds. And so working with students to hear them say, oh, my, what I've gone through in my life or what I've experienced or my identities actually do make me a leader. I just never saw myself as one was incredibly motivating. From there, I ended up transitioning to the tech space for a few years and worked in an HR employee experience software company. But again, that same sort of questioning was happening. I was asking, what is this about? Who is this designed for and why? And we talk about things like the employee experience. How can we make them more inclusive? I started to really drive diversity and inclusion work at that company. And that was all happening right prior to May 2020 when suddenly... It felt like the world opened their eyes and realized, right, the racial injustices that are happening right around us. And at that point, I realized I've been sort of talking about this and in the social justice space for so long, and I'm doing it for free on top of my day job for this company because I care about it. And I decided to seize the moment, which when suddenly companies cared or said they cared, that I wanted to change paths and find a job that really let me do that work in a way that was a full-time capacity. So 
that was when I joined up with friends to become the Courage Collective and started seeking out a day job opportunity as well that would allow me to use that skill set more holistically. Awesome. Thanks for that. And I'm curious, you brought up May 2020, right? I'm curious to get your thoughts. It's now been a couple of years. What progress do you think we've made in the DEI space over the last couple of years? Like you said, uh, a lot of companies have pledged to do better and implemented certain initiatives. I think some have certainly done better than others, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on the last couple of years. Yeah, something we talk about a lot in the Courage Collective is this idea of holding two truths. And we have to remind ourselves of that frequently. When I think about progress as it relates to work around racial equity, diversity, inclusion over the last two years, I have to hold both truths. I think there has been progress in pockets of the world. There's a collective awareness that I didn't notice before around topics related to identity, power, privilege. People are apt to be talking about this in some parts of the country or world where they weren't before. And at the same time, some of that progress feels pretty limited. Many companies are still not resourcing this work. Many companies don't understand the importance of it. Many companies are relying on volunteers within their organization to carry the work on their back, right? So there's both. I think there's incredible progress and incredible slowdown at the same time. And we have to sit with that, I think. Thank you for that. Anani, I want to ask you about some things you've talked about openly and would love for you to share your take on what it's like in the workplace. And you have unique insights and perspectives, lived experiences, and then also ones that you know you're able to observe and apply your expertise into. Can you talk a little bit about what companies are are willing to do and kind of undo? Can you share with us the concepts that you have about doing and undoing within systems? Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting when we talk with different companies about their efforts in DEI, they often go to two places. One, the quote unquote pipeline problem. We don't have enough diversity in our candidate pool. How do we change that? That's the first place they go. The second place is let's institute a training across the organization, maybe an unconscious bias training or something. And Though so much energy poured into both of those. And frankly, that's just incomplete. And it doesn't really capture what you need to, to your point, do and undo within an employee experience. So one of the things we do with the Courage Collective is we talk to them about what is the experience of someone before they're hired with your company, through the hiring process, and then when they're actually there. What's the company values? What are the policies that are in place for employees? What are your benefits? What's the way leaders show up? How do managers show up? All of these pieces of the puzzle impact the way that an employee actually experiences the company and how diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts actually live. And it also matters when somebody leaves the organization. What's been their experience as they transition out? How do they rate or review that company post-departure? That's all part of the ecosystem. And I think many parts of that equation are often ignored. Nani, I want to ask you a follow-up question. Based on your experience and the companies that you're talking to, do you think that they really understand how much work and effort actually needs to go into making a change, right? Because when I hear you talk and describe some of your experiences and some companies may think it's just a check the box, or like you said, some of these efforts are really incomplete. I'm just curious if you think companies 
and not all, so I don't want to generalize all companies, but do you get a sense that some companies don't really understand just what they are about to enter into and the real effort that it's going to take to make a change? A thousand percent. Yes. Companies do not understand what is ahead of them. And oftentimes what they do want is a return, quote unquote, on investment in the same way any other business strategy would reveal itself. So I actually had somebody in a meeting recently say, okay, this is all feel good and all, but where do I get the metrics or the business results that prove that this is worth time and energy? And it's really interesting to explain to people that when you're talking about the human experience and what is centuries of systemic oppression, we're not going to see results overnight and we're not going to see them within a year. And it's going to be a long road and we have to move away from the idea that we're working towards like a check mark or some sort of certificate or leveling up per se. I think generally in our society, we think so linear about our achievements and our learning. You know, you do X program to get X job or this certification to move up in this way. But with DNI, it's ongoing and it's evolving and it goes backwards and forward. And I think we have to learn that that's just how it is to be able to actually make progress. Thank you for sharing that tremendous insight in an area that Carol and I have heard companies struggle with as well. And so I want to stay within a company experience. And we have a lot of company leaders and organizations that are supporters of the podcast. Listen, can you share with some of our audience, some of the unique insights that you've talked about before, what it's like to be a person of color or of a different culture and having different approaches within the cultures in life, and then having that also apply within the workplace. And I think of how you've talked about linguistic styles and reward, how there is a difference in groups of people. And that turns into a system that we may be familiar with or unfamiliar with based on our backgrounds in the current environment. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of like almost the credit card example that you've talked about and what that means? Yeah, I think people have to understand that what we're working through is the human experience. It's not a set of standards or policies or trainings that you can simply turn the key on or change. We have to do a lot of undoing and learning and in every part of the business. And that's hard for people to wrap their heads around because we aren't really taught to sit in this human experience and listen to one another and learn that your pain and suffering is part of my collective responsibility to change. And so that's the kind of conversation we've had with leaders. I think one of the things I always emphasize with folks is when you're driving diversity and inclusion efforts, keeping a real pulse on Again, who is this for? Oftentimes, I find myself in conversations where the focus has become less on the communities that have been marginalized, but more on how do we bring the leaders up to speed or prove these people to these folks in power that this is worthwhile? And then you're pouring so much energy into that part of the work and not actually on the folks that need it, that it feels out of whack altogether. And as a person of color in the workplace trying to drive that change, that's how burnout happens. When your own personal ties to work become just a constant drive up a hill without any space for your own experience, it's exhausting. And I think a lot of folks are burning out because of that. Great points. 
I think within organizations too, sometimes there's already like a set of practices in, in, in place and maybe it doesn't mean to exclude, but it just kind of does because that's how it started. You have a great example around finance and budget and around like how there's an example of business policy that may exist, right? But maybe that business policy shouldn't be the same for everyone, or maybe it should just change altogether. Can you talk about maybe that example? Yeah, it's a really clear example for folks. Worked at a company before where no matter what your expenses were from when you were interviewing for the company to while you were an employee there, you first paid for them on your credit card, and then you were reimbursed later on. And what we heard from folks was a few things. One, it assumed that people had space on their credit cards or the ability to have a credit card, which we know based on the history of American financial systems, many communities of color have been denied access to credit, good credit opportunities in the past. And so this is a generational problem. And we're assuming that folks have that opportunity right now and that they have the amount of cash in their account that they can make do while we wait for the reimbursement. And so folks of color I talked to who were trying to book their flights for their interview were feeling stressed about that and adding on more credit to their already stacked account to try to make this work when it just wasn't simply accessible for folks. And we heard from the other side folks who are doing really well financially saying, oh, this is great. I get more points on my credit card. I can go to the hotel and get a better room. I can be upgraded on my flight because of all this credit that I'm building. But it was built around them. It wasn't built around a more inclusive environment or more diverse stakeholders. And so our recommendation was you got to provide an option for a company card for folks. That's great. I've got one more I want you to share because I think this is really valuable to pass these things on. You talk about kind of a different approach to how we communicate and how one may be perceived as quiet and, you know, not participating and not bold and how cultures may be different in that sort of voice and and loud sort of style could be perceived as rude. Can you talk a little bit about that and how someone may be able to have a different perspective on how we interact and collaborate as coworkers? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the ways that I think diversity inclusion shows up in a company culture is through those unspoken norms. And one of the ways that I've seen that shown up is in company values. There often be these sort of broad sweeping values that will be what employees are supposed to aspire to. So I worked with a company that had something along the lines of be bold, right? Like say what you mean and say it, speak truth to power, whatever the kind of sub bullets were. And what became obvious pretty quickly was that what that meant to be bold, to speak up, to speak your mind, had different consequences for different people. Some folks could walk into a room and say what they wanted and be applauded. Those were typically folks with a lot of positional power. If somebody from a more historically excluded community was to speak up in the same way, they are then questioned, right, for showing that part of their humanity. And the standards were completely different for folks. And so We saw people that were rated really highly because of the way they showed up, but other folks who did the same sort of behavior were rated differently or as unprofessional. And I could go on a whole tangent about how I don't believe in professionalism, but I'll save that for later. I love that. And I think what you're speaking to really, I think, goes to the point that when 
companies are building out missions and visions and sort of words that they want to live by, why it has to come from a really wide and diverse set of people within an organization and not just a few people in a room saying, okay, this is what we're going to stand for as an organization. This is what our values and our mission is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bring people in, right? When you're developing those mission, vision, values, ask them how it lands. Does it actually feel accessible to you or not? And have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think hopefully more and more companies have really learned that and are taking that to heart, or at least over the last couple of years. Nani, you mentioned earlier that you do have kids and you have two major initiatives going on in your life in terms of your professional life, plus your home life and two little ones. How are you balancing it all? Give Eric and I some advice. We're both fathers as well, too, of, of kids. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think one of the biggest learnings I've had in the last year was that my work is not my purpose. And there was a time, and I think it's a combination of things, I think as a millennial that was sort of ingrained into us and also in higher education and the education I got, there was all this messaging about your calling. And your calling being tied to what you did for a living, right? Your purpose for being on this earth. And what that does, it just leads to failure, in my opinion. You pouring your whole self and your own whole reason for being on this earth into a company or a job or a title or a product when really that's not about you. It's it's something that you're doing, but it's not your entire identity. And especially with the work of diversity, equity, inclusion, when it's so deeply personal, so deeply spiritual on so many levels, you can't fully pull yourself in in that way. And so for me, when I was able to make a separation and be clear with myself that my impact in this world is for more people to be heard, seen, understood, work is part of how I do that, but it's not everything. And so that allows me to show up for work do good work, show up for people, the people that I really want to be there for. And at the end of the day, I can close my computer and I can put it away because it's not going to be solved overnight, but my impact is in the moment when I can be there. And something about the delineation for me has really helped me balance my life. And I think show up more differently for my family too. Nice. I want to ask both of you your opinion on this because my four-year-old girl, she loves to ask me why, why, why over and Uh over and over again. And sometimes it may drive me nuts, but I'm never going to tell her stop asking why, because I want her to ask why all the time. Yes, it's so important. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Where do you draw inspiration from? I draw inspiration from a few different places. One, I'm really moved by activism and the way folks are showing up all across the world. I'm a big social media person. I love it. I dig in and just love the way people show up vulnerably and authentically, speak truth to power, talk about how they have experienced oppression in a really bold and authentic way, and also speak up in ways that they think things aren't right. And it's really awesome for me to hear that and see people use their platforms to share those messages. So that's one way that I draw inspiration. Similarly, I'm I'm an avid reader and I'm always bringing in books, biographies, but also fiction. I think the more I can widen my own aperture, the more perspectives I can bring into my inspiration. And then lastly, over the last year, I've been trying to move away from the Western world of 
needing everything to be really clear and having a lot of evidence and leaning a little bit more into the unknown. So that for me looks like every morning I pull a tarot card to see what something I need to know about today. Or I go on a walk and just enjoy the messages and what I see in nature that's there for me. Or I do a meditation or kind of connecting to myself and to the world in a way that feels different than what we're asked to do in kind of traditional America. Fascinating. Nani, tell us a little bit about what you're excited about for all of the work in DEI and other really important areas for organizations. Can you tell us what you're excited about? I'm really excited because I'm seeing signs of people refusing to settle for what has been done and wanting to just completely scratch it all and start over. And that goes in the how as well as the what. And I think it helps that we have a generation coming in, Generation Z, that to the workplace that's incredibly clear about values and how they want to show up in this world, what they want to buy, what they want to stand for. And that makes it so that companies have to meet the moment and have to change the way that they've shown up for people that have settled for the status quo in the past. And so really excites me when I think about the EI to break down systems that have been in place and think about how we could do these differently if we started from the needs of those in those communities rather than folks who are in power. Cool. I'm curious, REI, inclusion marketing, tell us about some exciting things that are happening there. Tell us a little yeah. bit about like what sort of initiatives and, and also kind of the relationships of the great outdoors. Yeah. You know, it was personally compelling for me to work at REI. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, had a lot of access to outside time, and I never saw myself as part of the outdoor industry or quote unquote, or outdoorsy, whatever that means. I, it was clear to me that that was defined narrowly and that the activities that were associated with being outdoorsy, skiing, climbing, deep sea diving, all these things that just aren't my kind of activity or recreation didn't feel mm -hmm. like something that I was really into. And what excites me about the work we're doing at REI is thinking about how do we redefine what this whole outdoorsy thing is? People, yeah. communities have been outside for centuries and have found joy, meaning, connection outdoors. So mm -hmm. how can we build this industry to be more inclusive of those different ways people are outside? And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about that question. We're thinking about the actual products we carry to be more reflective of diverse communities so that more people can actually wear and get excited about the things that they see in an REI store. It's just an exciting place to be on and changing an industry at large. That's great. What advice would you give to anyone that is thinking about starting a career in DEI or is about to start a career in DEI? Yeah, I think the first would be sort of an underline of what I shared earlier around your work is not your purpose and protecting yourself in that way. I think reminding yourself you are not responsible for entirely changing a company or shifting centuries of systemic oppression. You are there to make an impact, define what that impact is for you and stay there, right? I think that's one of the things I would recommend. The other piece is what I also alluded to earlier around really keeping a pulse on who the work is for. If it feels like the majority of your time is spent on convincing people in positions of power that this work is worth it, or maybe buffering so much so that people who are 
from predominantly powerful groups are not uncomfortable, right? If your energy is all there, then that's not really what the work is about. And if you can shift that, it's really helpful. And then I think my last piece of advice for folks would be do it in community. Make sure you're surrounded by folks who are doing the work and have fun together, relax together, rest together. This work is exhausting on many levels and it's important to do it together. Thank you for that. All right. Now, fun question. I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, which is to tell us what the top three apps on your phone are that you use, but you can't name email or calendar or text messaging. Those are just way too easy and boring. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I got to say first, I have to admit is TikTok. I have been really pulled into TikTok and I could spend hours on it if I didn't stop myself, but it's all of the content. I love the way people are creative. They're playful. They're also speaking about really incredibly vulnerable topics. And it's just a really awesome way to get to experience just life in a different way. I've been really enjoying that. And also I'll go on some deep rabbit holes about topics I didn't even know about due to the algorithms. (laughs) I would say other two others. I'm also a big Instagram user. I always have really enjoyed that platform. Although yesterday I signed into it and it was entirely videos and ads on my feed. So I may be changing my tune on that one soon. Meta kind of creeps me out. And lastly, I would say (laughs) Marco Polo. I downloaded that app before the pandemic and it's a video messaging app. And it has been instrumental for me in connecting with friends across the country being able to keep in touch when we haven't been able to be together in person. I think I have four to five groups on there that I speak to several times a week. And I just have really, really been grateful for that app. That's great. All right. Ani, thanks for hanging out with us. And what are some ways that our audience can reach out to you or stay in touch or follow you? Yeah, I think the best way right now is LinkedIn. You can search for me, Nani Vishwanath or Nandita Vishwanath, which is my full name. Right now, my Instagram's private because of the children, but who knows? Maybe one day I'll open it up. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us. And everyone, thanks again for listening. You can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcasts and look for the logo. Thanks again for joining us, Nani. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.